Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. I am so happy to be with you here now in season five of Foodie Pharmacology. We've come a long way, baby. Five seasons. So with 134 episodes and counting, I'm so pleased to continue to bring bring you the latest behind the science, the culture, and the pharmacology of our food. And you can also help us keep the show running with two very simple steps. Head over to Apple Podcasts and scroll down to the rating and review section. And with a simple click, you can give the show five stars and help us to reach an even bigger audience. Next, would you mind buying me a cup of coffee? Seriously, for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can make a big difference in helping us to cover the operational costs for foodie pharmacology. Just head over to buymeacoffee.com slash foodie pharma. So this week on the podcast, we're going to explore the intersection of history and culture on our dinner plates. And I'm posing a very simple question that may have a somewhat complex answer. Can the origins of a culture be found in the simplicity of a meal? And our guest today is Andreas Viestad, and he is just the right person to answer this question. In his latest book, he takes a deep look at the meaning behind a seemingly innocuous meal in Rome. Andreas is a Norwegian food writer, a restaurateur, and activist. His latest book is called Dinner in Rome, and I have it right here, um, A History of the World in One Meal, where he investigates how food has helped to shape history and who we are today. He's most known in the U.S. for his longtime public television series, New Scandinavian Cooking, and as the writer of two cookbooks, one on Scandinavian food and one on spices, and as a Washington Post columnist. So thanks so much for coming on the show today, Andreas. It's really nice to meet you. Thank you. It's great being here, doctor. I, I won't refer to you as, as Cassandra. I'll just refer to you as doctor because uh, that's kind of like a, a family tradition. My my wife has a, is an archaeologist. She has a doctorate and I am. I normally just refer to her, her as doctor. I say, well, I think now it's time for the doctor to do the dishes since I I, I, I made the food. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah, my husband doesn't get away with that, <laughs> with the dishes. <laughs> um, but uh, gosh, but, but, who, who, but who does the co- cooking then? Um, yeah, you're right. He does the cooking mm. and the dishes. The kids do the dishes sometimes. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I have a good situation. Yeah. <laughs> So you do nothing uh, except being a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And I, That's I do. I do. Cook, I do cook sometimes. You know, you're yeah. you're a fan of Italian food, so you'll appreciate this. Um, my husband will call my food "alla Cassandrese," the Cassandra-style Italian cooking. <laughs> so, <laughs> great. Well, let's let's dive into some of the topics in your book. Um, I love the I love the approach to the book. It's a very readable book. It's it really you have a great way of bringing people into a sense of place as you're enjoying this meal. Um, And actually I do want to, I want to read one phrase from the one little excerpt from the book, because I really, this resonated with me and I think it'll help to frame um, our discussion for the listeners out there. Um, And so this is your chapter on oil and um, and on, on olive oil in particular. Um, The taste of the fried artichoke has two levels. One is the specific and unique taste of the artichoke itself and the shock of sweetness it brings. The other is a flavor that gives you an immediate sense of where you are in the world. 
It's a taste that crops up everywhere, and yet it's the basis of everything, from the simplest salad to pasta, fish, and meat dishes, the taste of olive oil. I just thought that was a beautiful tribute to olive oil. And um, yeah, why don't, why don't we start there? Just tell us a little bit about what, what brought you to write a book like this, dissecting a meal and kind of getting into the, the wonder and beauty of each of the ingredients. Well, can I first say something about the setting of the book? It's it's mm -hmm. um, a restaurant in the middle of Rome, uh, uh, in Rome's Campo di Fiori. It's a very traditional restaurant called La Carbonara. It's been there for ages. They more or less serve the same menu now as they did like 50 or 100 years ago. And this is very much the traditional the Roman restaurant, you can go in there and you don't really have to look at the menu. You know more or less what they have on the menu because they're all pretty similar. And I thought that using that like traditional meal um, as a starting point would be great to continue kind of a discussion that I've had with my wife for many, many years. As I told you, she's an archaeologist and we go to Rome. It's one of our favorite places in the world. And then we'll walk around this city that is so filled with history and she'll point at you know uh, a, a piece of marble broken marble somewhere and she'll kind of use her method that the you know the stuff that she uses with her students to to sort of build the house that was once there and tell the story of of the culture that in uh, uh, that was there and built built this particular structure and that's very much, in a way, the archaeological method. And then at one point, your your feet are sore and you're kind of a bit, bit tired of that never-ending history lesson that is Rome. And then you sit down at a restaurant with a with a with a glass of wine and some pasta, and and you just enjoy. And then it's very easy to think that Rome and history has these like two different levels that this. You know the the monuments and the and the ruins and and the, and the streets they have a tangible history whereas the food is just about enjoyment but i i kind of wanted to to make a statement about food and history saying that food is so incredibly important and always has been important in our our lives uh, our human lives and and it is a building block in history so i thought i wanted to use um this kind of method to analyze a meal as well. So I kind of started calling it culinary archaeology just to annoy my wife, but it kind <laughs> of the term kind of, kind of stuck. And and that's what I'm doing. I'm I'm eating a meal and then I'm analyzing it just in the same way as you would if it was like the ruins of a great palace. But the the great joy about food is that whereas you know that palace that it crumbled two thousand years ago, and we can sort of marvel at the fact that it's still there, and we can read something out of it. The food is new and fresh every time. You know, it's a fantastic yeah. thing, and we have such an intimate relationship to it. So um, I think that that is. I'm I'm so glad you you use that little excerpt on oil because oil has these sort of two different levels, as all food does. It, it is what it does to your your flavor, your palate, your experience, your enjoyment. But it also tells this story of where you are. The, in the, the Mediterranean culture was very much built around 
olive oil. And, yeah. and I, I come from the north, you know, I come from mm -hmm. Norway, the north of Europe. And, uh, and traditionally, we didn't have olive oil. Of course, today, you know, you can buy anything. But um, so olive oil versus butter was a big, big conflict in the 16th century when there was Reformation, you know, when the Catholic Church and and the Protestant Lutheran churches split. One of the things that they had a discussion on was uh, the use of uh, the mandatory use of olive oil. And hmm. there was this, you know, was this German priest who said, you know, hey, the papal church is forcing us to to eat this rancid oil because I mean, not all of the oil was, you know, they didn't export the nicest oil. There were yeah. taxes, so it was super expensive. And mm -hmm. then, you know, it would oxidize on the way. So the olive oil that you were, you had to eat because of the regulations around Lent and all the fast days, that was very, very unpopular. And they had this sort of leader in the fight for butter against olive oil. And that leader was Martin Luther, you know? Yeah, he had, he had valid and important theological uh, arguments, but he also had this um, bread and butter uh, <laughs> uh, sale, sales pitch to the general population. He said, if you join me, um, you can eat your butter. You can eat uh, your butter. Of, yeah. <laughs> Who'd have known like the, mm. the great butter versus oil war <laughs> or mm. conflict? That's, that's amazing. Well, there, there is so much history in each of our ingredients. And, um, you know, when I think of Italian food, as, as I, I'm sure many people do, we immediately think of pasta. And um, in the book, you wrote that there is more history in a bowl of pasta than in the Colosseum. Mm. I mean, that's an incredible statement. So what is that based on? Like, how well, is there more history? In, my, in a way, I, I, I sort of, when I wrote that sentence, I thought I, I, I had to like pull myself together and feel I felt brave when I wrote mm -hmm. it because I, it's like it goes against everything you've learned. But the more I went gone into it, the more I feel that that is really not an exaggeration at all. I mean, mm -hmm. the Colosseum is a, an incredible thing, but it's just a building, you know, you can mm -hmm. tell the you can tell the story of Colosseum, you can write a book about it, you can write hundreds of books, but it's still just a building and there were really important things happening there during the span of a couple of centuries. Yeah, you know, so it's quite an important building. But if you think of the way pasta has filled our lives, you know, you have, you can track pasta and wheat back, you know, to the founding of Italy, you know, how did the Italians know that they were one nation when they were uh, joined and unified by force in the 1860s. It was when that little the macaroni, as they called it, from Naples spread and became the staple food more or less all over the country. So you can tell that story. You can tell the specific story of, of the world's best dish, the uh, pasta carbonara, and how it might not have originated in Rome um, among the uh, 
you know, coal sellers, but maybe it was a consequence of American soldiers staying in Rome just after the Second World War. But you can also track it back even further if you study wheat in itself. Wheat mm-hmm. is really the foundation of Western civilization. Uh, because if you go back, say, 13,000 years ago, uh, the, the humans living in what is today uh, Europe were a nomadic. They were hunters, hunters and gatherers. And it, it was just when they started realizing that this little grass had, had a little seed that was quite nutritious and gave off a good energy bus and could help create food security. And then they started gathering it and replanting it and tending to it. And then after a while, they didn't, you know, roam around uh, because they wanted to tend to their, <laughs> their crop. And then that was the foundation of uh, building the first houses, the first villages. At one point, they had to write down, you know, who's got this and that much grain in the communal, you know, storage room. And, they, and the, how do we protect it? They started, uh, uh, you know, collecting taxes. So you can track all of this back to wheat, which is basically what you find in a bowl of pasta. So if you use this method, there's uh, no limit to how deep uh, you can go. Yeah, it's like a forensic history of a food. Hmm. I mean, what's what's interesting to me is, you know, as a as a food itself, I mean, pasta is so diverse. There's so many different shapes and a lot of rules about which pasta you should use with which condiments and you know, and which ones are good for soups, which ones need to be with a tomato base, which ones go with vegetables. Um, and you know, I can tell from your writing, you really love pasta carbonara. So why don't we start with there? Um, can you explain to the audience what is pasta carbonara? Because maybe not everyone is familiar with it. Um, and what's so very special about it in your experience? Well, uh, pasta carbonara is is a dish, but it's also one of these sort of, it's almost like um, an eternal idea. It, it is, um, you know, it's more than its components. Um, the ingredients in a traditional pasta carbonara are uh, pasta, normally a sort of shortish pasta, but not always. Um, and then uh, egg yolk, uh, and then a pig jowl instead of bacon or pancetta. Mm-hmm. It's made with guanciale, which is the cured pig jowl. Mm-hmm. And then uh, instead of Parmesan cheese, which is often used, it, it, it should originally be pecorino cheese, which is uh, the uh, sheep's, uh, sheep's milk uh, uh, cheese, the hard sheep's milk cheese, which is kind of like Parmesan, but it's got a little more funk. And then, yeah. uh, and then uh, just a little sprinkle of uh, pepper. And allegedly that was because it was typical food for... Uh, these sort of coal cellars, uh, and the, there would always be a little sprinkle of coal in the dish. Um, mm. But I think it's so interesting because it's it is the best 
dish in the world. And I'm not saying this just as a food lover. I'm saying this as an expert, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but then I think it's interesting because there are so many rules associated to it. And the Italians are like super strict. I found this, um, this list of um, do's and don'ts about uh, carbonara. And I think the Academy of Italian uh, uh, Food has published a list of the most plagiarized and misused foods and carbonara is on the top of that list there's this <laughs> saying that if your if your boyfriend uh, makes carbonara with garlic break up if your <laughs> uh, if your boyfriend makes carbonara uh, with cream break up if uh, your boyfriend makes carbonara uh, 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 with the bacon instead of guanciale, break up. If he <laughs> makes uh, uh, pasta carbonara from a tin or a, or a you know pre-made bag, get a restraining order. <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm in trouble because my husband made amazing carbonara this week, but it definitely was not. It was it was just bacon and a little bit of cream and with the egg. <laughs> so I'll have to tell him he's breaking all the rules. It was delicious, but maybe not as delicious as it could be. But the, right the fun thing about, and one of the reasons why I love Italian food is that there are all these rules. And, mm -hmm. and first of all, Italians tend to sort of be very strict about these rules, but then you, you ask your ne next Italian and the, their rules are just as strict, but they're not the same. <laughs> you know, So yeah. I think that's pretty, fun but also there's this little fun fact about carbonara that it was for some reason there's this like big compendium of all roman dishes from uh, like the mid 1930s and there is no mention of pasta carbonara there hmm. uh, uh, but it just pops up after the second world war and then there's this hypothesis that just after uh, Mussolini's uh, regime fell and, and Americans uh, uh, occupied Italy for a while. Um, then, of course, the country was flooded with uh, American soldiers and they had rations from home that were quite, you know, generous compared to mm -hmm. the situation in Europe just after this devastating world war. And, and you had, like, solid midwestern soldiers you know biff and chad and uh, <laughs> you know they entered rome and they found that the food that typical romans ate was like innards and strange looking and tasting things so instead of eating that and instead of eating back home in their you know in their uh, mass kitchens they would bring some of their rations into uh roman restaurants and say can you make something out of this and that so mm. maybe the first carbonara was made with you know tinned cream and uh and bacon and uh, and eggs from uh, soldiers rations and then that the backstory afterwards was like oh this is very authentic it's uh, you know and... <laughs> yeah Authentic Italian. Well, I think every every cuisine is influenced by different cultures, and it makes you wonder just how many different points in history you have those types of intersections where people are bringing brand new ingredients to the table and saying, "Okay, what? Mm. How do you how do you transform this in your in your style of cooking?" 
Yeah. I, I think that, you know, our, our, our cultures are always in flux. And I think that the, the, the fun thing with Italian, the particularly fun thing about Italian cooking is that it's so, it seems so rooted. It's so, so much a carrier of identity. You know, if you ask a normal American, what is an American cooking? It's sometimes a little bit vague, you know, depending on where you're from. And it's certainly the same in many other European countries, but Italians, they, they are so strict about it. But still, if you analyze it a little bit, you can say, okay, the pasta probably came to the Italians from the Arabs, you know, mm -hmm. granted a, a long time ago, maybe, uh, you know, a thousand years ago. Uh, and then uh, obviously uh, the tomato and the aubergines and stuff like that, that, that those are imports from the Americas, you know? Uh, yeah. There's so a great story this, behind that. Mm, yeah, I mean, mm, if you think about it, the when people when you ask people about about Italian food today, it's always well, it's with, with the marinara, and that didn't exist until I mean, I think the records show maybe until around the oh gosh, into the 1600s or very late 1500s that they began to experiment with tomatoes. They thought it was toxic. I mean, it was yeah. it looks like other toxic plants from that region. Um, that really interesting and, and it, it was um, it was it was uh, certainly not wild, widely used until the uh, 18th century oh, yeah. there was exactly. probably someone who ate it yeah mm -hmm. yeah so so i think you know there's a tendency with with all kinds of uh, sort of culinary things is that you think that the food that your mother made is how it always was but she probably made it slightly different from her mo mother and maybe her mother again made it very different from mm -hmm. you know you know certainly with this sort of um, story that you've had in the united states of immigration but also in the rest of the world of urbanization you know uh, my great great grandmother was a peasant and my grandmother was uh, uh, you know she studied to be a nurse and she lived in the city and 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 so she gave me a taste of some of this sort of rural food that she'd grown up with, but it must have been very different from the food she actually grow, grew up with. You know, yeah. she bought it in a store. Well, that's that's another big difference, I think, is access to ingredients. Is it something that you're able to access right off the vine, or something that's been shipped from a far distance, or is mm. not quite as fresh? Mm. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about. Um, how how you apply these techniques in gastronomy to really dissect a meal and could you, you picked Rome of all of the cities you write you travel you experience foods in different cultures I guess why start with Rome um, for for this particular book I think it's partly because of uh, the thing I mentioned that that I'd been there so much with my wife and you and mm -hmm. kind of started seeing the city through her eyes as an archaeologist and then thought, uh, you know, thought that we, we, we need to study the food and see it as just an mm -hmm. important part or even more important, I think, than all the sort of uh, the physical framework and the, and, the, and the buildings and structures. But I also thought that this is a very much a universal uh, story. And I, I think I could have told it sitting in a restaurant basically anywhere in the world but yeah. i think also rome is has been such a center of our sort of certainly western 
in the sense of European and American culture, the, you know, uh, most, you know, since it was the center of Christianity for such a long time. So regardless of whether you believe or not, or, you know, it is, a, it is just an important city uh, that belongs to the world more than just, mm -hmm. you know, if I, I could have told that story uh, sitting in a restaurant in Pittsburgh or in, uh, yeah. or in Dusseldorf <laughs> or in my Oslo, but then people would ask, Hey, what is it about, you know, the specificity of, uh, um, I think the specificity of Rome kind of, you know, it belongs to you and me as well, even though we're not Romans. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's really nice. Well, one other thing I appreciate in, in your approach to the book was some of your scenes read almost as like a anthropological, like ethnography. And I'll, I'll point to the chapter on wine, as I thought it was very sweet. You talk about, you know, people go to a restaurant to enjoy their wine and yeah, you can enjoy your wine. <laughs> and, um, you know, there was a there was a moment when an elderly gentleman perhaps had a bit too much and kind of created a chain reaction with the stairs. Mm -hmm. well, tell us a little bit about that experience of just kind of observing human behavior in these settings um, and how you brought that into the book, into your storytelling. Yeah, it made me think, because it was uh, uh, kind of towards the end of of, uh, of my meal. Um, uh, La Carbonara is a restaurant, a two-level restaurant. So there's mm -hmm. a little dining room on the ground floor, and then there's a uh, there's a quite substantial one, uh, one floor up, and there was, and it's typically sort of congregated by people who come uh, regulars. You know, in 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 the tourist season, there are lots of tourists, but um, most of the year it's just regulars, Romans. Mm -hmm. And there was this elderly, very neatly dressed gentleman who walked down, and and he just did that little extra step that you sometimes do if you have one <laughs> glass too many and there was and he kind of fell and he he leaned on on another one who 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 lent on on a waiter and and a glass broke it wasn't dramatic it happens all the time yeah but it was this little awkward moment when everyone in the restaurant looked at him for just a second you know and everyone knew that everyone had the same thought oh old man is drunk and <laughs> I thought of this because it was such an embarrassing thing and everyone who likes to have a glass of wine will know that you know sometimes you have one glass too many but there was something about i made this sort of a reflection of, uh, of the fact that we had a full room of people we all were drinking wine except for <laughs> like there were three kids huh yeah um, and and everyone drinks wine for the same reason, you know. Yeah, it's it's tasty, but it's also you like it because it's a little bit intoxicating. But the mm -hmm. moment that he flipped over and he just had one glass too many, we were all kind of judgmental whether we meant to be or not. You know, we looked mm -hmm. at him and we thought, oh, he's drunk. And 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 then maybe we could reconsider and say, yeah, good for you, old man. You know, uh, you're having <laughs> a, a a nice meal, but. Uh, but then also, if you study the history of wine and alcohol, it's been so important in, in, in sort of recent human history, by which I mean the last you know, 10,000 10, years. And uh, this sort of our 
quest for enjoyment and this little bus uh, has been really important and it's you know an important part of many you know religious rituals you can see sort of shadows uh, of it in uh, in uh, in the, you know your wafer and your glass of wine at uh, uh, as a part of uh, of uh, uh, yeah communion and, and stuff like that um and certainly uh, there are indications that maybe one of the reasons why people started growing you know growing grains and becoming uh sedentary was our wish to be together but also to be bound together in this sort of slight intoxication so there were, were <laughs> these sort of intoxication ceremonies that yeah. we can say you know we have some of the same in today's restaurants and bars even though it has evolved i like i like that idea of like dining especially fine dining as ceremony because there are rules and there are taboos mm. and mm. if one breaks a taboo like you said the whole restaurant turns <laughs> so look at you <laughs> um so that's that's just really it's really fascinating that's great and we uh, i'm i'm i love wine and i'm i'm quite particular about my wines you know so yeah this here is a this here is a really nice um chianti if i can show from a, mm -hmm. a from a great great producer i've had it stored in my cellar for um uh, for quite a few years and then uh it's but still and i i drink it because i think it is fantastic and it's great with food and but uh then you know snobbish people like me and maybe even you uh, can kind of look down on people who who drink plonk or who don't really appreciate the finer points but still it's also you know it is worth noticing that you know even though i pretend to be drinking it only because i appreciate its subtle flavor nuances it also does have like 14 and a half percent alcohol and <laughs> Uh, and um, the difference between a, a, a cheap uh, plonk wine and a, a well-stored wine, you know, this has been in my cellar for nearly 10 years, is is in a way like the difference between flying coach and flying business class is a more enjoyable way, but you're actually getting to the same destination. Oh, that's a great analogy. Yes. <laughs> well, and I, I know it's hard to go from whether you're drinking the fine wine or you're in business class to go back um, to the other. I, I know that lesson well. <laughs> well, um, we're getting we're getting close to, to wrapping up the show. And before we do, of course, I have to ask you, because you are a food expert with um, some incredible cooking skills, can you walk us through a recipe um, that we might be able to follow to have a really nice um, meal, maybe inspired by your book. I, I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to say, can you teach us how to make pasta carbonara? I don't know, um, but maybe you can you can walk us through that or, or even a simpler recipe if, if you have one that you enjoy making. No, I, I think that, you know, sure. I think one of the things which is great with a, a, a great meal, if, especially if you're going to share it with with your mm -hmm. uh, with, with your loved ones, is you want to be present. You want to be there yourself, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, yeah. I work with restaurants. Obviously, in, in, in a restaurant, the point is uh, that someone has to work really, really hard and the other ones can enjoy it. But 
if you're making a meal for someone you love, a, a part of showing that love is to make something really tasty, but it's also showing up. <laughs> if yeah, you don't show yeah. up, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I like the um, Italian way of, of having uh, the beginning of a meal, you know, maybe something cold, maybe, you know, if it's in season, just some uh, uh, lovely vegetables or, or some prosciutto mm -hmm. or something like that. And then uh, pasta carbonara is one of those in, in, in Italy, they, they have, uh, uh, they have pasta dishes like the preemie and you're not supposed to just eat preemie. You're supposed to eat a, you know, a generous, but not a, an incredibly big portion of it. And mm -hmm. it's certainly with the pasta carbonara is really nice because it is a quite rich dish. So if you eat, you know, a, a decent amount, but not, you know, three servings, yeah. um, and then end up with the, like what I do in the, in the meal, end up uh, having as a secondo, uh, the, um, some braised lamb ribs. Mm. It doesn't have to be lamb ribs, but the point is that if you're making it at home, you can just have a piece, you know, a tough cut of meat. Lamb ribs is very typical Italian and you can just cook it over, you know, medium temperature for a long time. So it's completely kind of falls apart and it doesn't need much seasoning because, you know, kind of fatty, uh, piece like lamb ribs, um, it, it, it can, it can handle a bit of, uh, you know, a, a certain amount of beating, you know, you don't have to be super precise. So just potatoes and and lamb ribs and uh, a squeeze of lemon and then uh, end with a, a lemon sorbet but i but then the only thing you really have to concentrate on is making the pasta carbonara and nice because everything else is either cold prepared or is yeah. kind of slow cooked kind of situation nice and then i can i can walk you through very very quickly how to how i make my carbonara it's basically okay. uh you Fry the guanciale, uh, small pieces of uh, of this cured pig jowl, or you can use pancetta, or you can even use um, you can even use uh, uh, bacon, and then say, because I I believe in the Alan Davidson uh, hypothesis <laughs> on the origins of, the, but then uh, of of the carbonara. Uh, but so so you cook that in advance, you know, so it's quite crispy, but not like not charred to death, and then uh, you mix. Uh, and then you have, um, say, uh, one and a half egg yolks per person. Um, mm -hmm. And you have that in a bowl together with the guanciale or pancetta and the, and the rendered fat. And then you've got a general uh, amount of, uh, of grated pecorino or parmesan. Mm -hmm. I prefer mm -hmm. pecorino. And then you cook the pasta. You, you drain it, but you just leave a little bit, you, you take a little bit of the cooking water uh, as well. And then you mix that together with the egg and the, and the, the egg mixture, the egg and uh, guanciale and, and grated cheese. And if it, if it turns a little bit dry, you know, it can turn a little bit dry, then you just add a little bit of the cooking water and then uh, you can have a family argument uh, as to how much pepper you should, uh, have. And I think I've had like uh, a few years. This is like the favorite dish, my kids' fav favorite dish. And, um, and when I make it, I use quite a lot of pepper. So in the beginning they were like complaining, but still finishing it because they loved it. <laughs> and now, uh, they, 
they love uh, the fact that I use uh, maybe technically too much pepper. I like, I really love this because this is a very deluxe meal when you think about it. When you have the antipasto, you have the cold vegetables or the really the only thing you're working at is boiling the pasta because you've already prepared the bacon or, or the guanciale or the pancetta fried. That's, that's amazing. And then you have a very fancy meal at the end that you can eat yeah. and enjoy with your family, with your loved ones. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. great advice actually. Yeah. yeah. Turn up. I mean, that's the biggest, that's the first advice I give, uh, you know, people since I, everyone knows, you know, everyone I know knows that I work with food. They have a tendency yeah. to, uh, to contact me if they've got, you know, got an important meal I'm making, you know, I'm going to propose to my girlfriend or, you know, yeah. I've, uh, I've made a fool out of myself and I'm trying to get it <laughs> uh, back in, to, to, you know, um, but uh, then, uh, then I'm, uh, my advice is always be there yourself, make a plan, which, you know, cause you know, imagine how dreadful it is to be on a date if you're sitting alone at the table and someone you hear someone is uh, scrambling with the pots and pans in another room, you know, that's no fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's actually excellent advice. So um, tell us where can our listeners go to find more about this book, about dinner in Rome and, and your other books, where can they go? Well, uh, you can, you can find them in, uh, in, in good bookstores. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that, uh, uh, I think that the couple of my previous books are uh, are uh, the where flavor is born is out of print. You can still find it uh, occasionally, and you can find it via Amazon, for instance. And uh, uh, Kitchen of Light is also uh, available. I know because I bought a copy for a friend of my mother's who really wanted it. And then uh, uh, Dinner in Rome is. Uh, uh, it's just being published in the US as we speak. So I know it should be in store in, in good uh, bookstores. And of course, you can buy it online as well. That's great. Great. And Andreas, what are, do you have any plans for your, your next project you can share with us? Or are you, I know you, you, you're, you're busy with many, many different things. So I don't know if you have another book coming out soon that we should keep an eye out for. Or Well, I, I, I do a lot of work also on, uh, I, I have a few restaurants. So I, I'm working mm -hmm. on uh, some important restaurant openings in my native Oslo. So one of them has an American link. I'm opening um, three restaurants in the wow. former uh, U.S. Embassy, a landmark building in the middle of Oslo. So that's very exciting. And I'm also working as an activist. Uh, I'm, I'm the founder of a nonprofit, a culinary center for children, where we do educational programs because we believe it's super important that when you grow up, you should not just, you know, everyone, you shouldn't just be told that, you know, potato chips are not good for you and broccoli is good for you. You should really have something invested in making and loving the healthy food. So it is a project that is uh, uh, associated with uh, the Edible Schoolyard uh, Alice Waters project that I'm sure you Wonderful. know. Um, and uh, uh, and I am I've just sort of started looking at uh, a new book project on the uh, uh, fantastic. Uh, 
multitude of different foods that we could eat and that we used oh. to eat. And now we have this sort of paradox that um, today uh, we have the possibility of eating more than, you know, uh, than any others, especially us. You know, we're lucky we live in an affluent part of the world uh, and mm -hmm. you, we can say, you know, do you want to eat Thai or Mexican or Scandinavian or Italian? Uh, yeah. But still, as as a species, we humans get 90% of our calories from 10 plants and five animals. Wow. And, and the reason why we became so incredibly successful originally was our unique ability to eat basically everything. We ate hundreds mm -hmm. and thousands of things. So I want to um celebrate that uh diversity and and uh and reflect on um on what we've done to it and and just see also you know in these times when when the world is changing we have to we have to learn relearn how to adapt because that was our superpower originally yeah that's that's such an amazing point and we talk a lot about that on the show of the importance of biodiversity and understanding the history of edible foods and you know seed banking and conserving biodiversity for the future of our food system so that is a great topic <laughs> and we should talk again once you uh once that's out well thanks so much andreas for coming on the show it was really great speaking with you thank you for having me doctor you've been listening to foodie pharmacology the science podcast for the food curious it's brought to you today, um, recorded on Restream. I want to send a big shout out of thanks to our producers for the show, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. And I also want to just give you a reminder, help us out, help us get this show out to a broader pool of listeners. You can do that by going to Apple Podcasts and clicking those five stars for us. And hey, if you really love the show, leave us a written review as well. And lastly, you know, I could use some caffeine. So buy me a coffee, go over to buymeacoffee.com and uh, backslash uh, foodie pharma. And for the price of a coffee, you can help us produce um, many more episodes um, for this season and beyond. So thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.